Let's take our Bibles this morning. There's several passages of scriptures we're going to be looking at today. One in uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, and then in 1 John chapter 3. And of course, I am considering the passage from Exodus chapter 20 in verse number 14, and that is the, uh, the passage on thou shalt not commit adultery, which I started last week, and to this, today we're going to continue that uh, message on that passage. But as I continue this morning, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for bringing us together, and I, I thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. I thank you, Lord, that we're able to have it in our hands and being able to own our own Bibles and be able to... Uh, look at the scripture in so many different ways today, electronically, on paper. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that even though it's all available to us, I pray, Lord, it would get into our heart, that we would think about it and meditate upon it, that it would be the fabric on how we live our life. And for we know, Lord, that's what pleases you. And we're here today to desire to want to please you, to know the truth. And we know, Lord, the truth swimming upstream, uh, Concerning our in our culture, Lord, and um, and I and it's being cast out, set aside, blasphemed, uh, and everything else, Lord, uh, just to destroy it. We know Satan and his fingerprints are all over that, and I just pray, Lord, you would allow us, your people, to be faithful uh, to the Word of God and to live it out and to know how to communicate it to others who are uh, struggling with its understanding and its practice. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in, in Exodus chapter 20, as I've been in the Ten Commandments, we are looking at the Seventh Commandment, and the Seventh Commandment, of course, is the commandment where the Bible says very clearly, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Now, from last week, the principle revealed in the Seventh Commandment was pretty direct, uh, where it is teaching to uh, us to honor the marriage institution by remaining faithful to one's own spouse and by respecting the marriages of other people. Uh, that's all included in that. Of course, that's more fleshed out in the New Testament. So today, we again are brought face-to-face -face with the realities of God's plan for marriage and personal morality as God intended it. The laws that God gave to the Israelites touched the very areas of their lives that he knew and would and could be most affected by association with the Canaanites or those people that would be other than Israel in the world. So these Canaanites were notorious for their complete lack of morality, lack of purity, and of course they served gods who were that they were devoted to were gods were who were grossly immoral and so these all so the physical and the spiritual were uh, all meshed into one in their minds and that what they did physically did not uh, constitute for them immorality but it was quite moral for them to do what they were doing because they had their own definition of what that was. So as we move farther and farther away from God and his standards and become increasingly secular and grossly immoral in our country, and that becomes the norm, we as the church cannot move away from the word of God. We must stick and stay in the word of God and get our uh, information from the Word of God. So it is clear, this is a clear and straightforward and emphatic command. Uh, you can almost feel the force of it, that God is against every kind of adultery. So that principle would be a principle that we are to live out today, that God is serious about fidelity. He's serious about purity. He's serious about morality. God is a moral being. That's why he is. He's created us as moral beings, and he will hold people accountable for their morality. Uh, when human 
humans reject God's rule and then replace it with their own understanding and their own rule, thus violating and perverting God's fixed order of the moral law, when that happens, uh, and if God's morals are violated, then there are serious consequences. And so God, I looked at some of those last week, God is serious about his marriage institution. He is serious about that. And of course, the big problem uh, is that we have we saw from the last week that marriage, we are to maintain to have a high view of marriage. We are to maintain a correct mindset concerning marriage. We are to maintain correct behavior before and in marriage. Uh, we are also to maintain a correct view of God in marriage. And then today we are going to be looking at this fourth one, and that is to maintain a correct and consistent conduct that aligns with pleasing pleasing God and also helps us to understand who we are. So in other words, God is in Scripture is very serious about his marriage institution because more than any other picture, it reflects God's faithful relationship to his covenant people and to his people and how faithful he is in that relationship. And it also, in the New Testament, has become clear to us how Christ loves and is faithful to his people in the church, and how the church is to be faithful to Christ, and respectfully loving and submitting to Christ. That is what the church is about. So that is the clear relationship we find in Scripture between his people and uh, God and his people, and his people and God. So in on this Lord's Day... Uh, I ended with the New Testament reference for the will of God in Thessalonians, and I'd like you to turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As we look at that passage of Scripture, we're going to see some of the, uh, be able to understand and kind of live out our sexuality so as to please God. We have a lot of instruction in this passage of Scripture because in this one, we want to maintain a correct and consistent conduct that aligns with pleasing God. And that's what we're looking at. And of course, look at the passage in 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter 3, verse 13, where Paul is uh, really saying to the people there, the Thessalonians who were formerly idolatrous, he provides a perspective that is... Uh, too often neglected in an sinfully intoxicated culture like theirs and ours. And it says there in verse 13 of chapter 3, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the, his saints. In other words, that Paul is concerned about the how we live because he's looking for the coming of Christ. In other words, in light of the coming of Christ, live this way. He's concerned about that. And then, of course, that also uh, tells us in the Word of God that uh, this is how you and I are to conduct ourselves as we go in and out of living our life on earth. Not only is there an uh, unattained maturity that we're after we want to become more mature but we are growing into uh and out of out growing out of lifestyles that were not the way we ought to live and cultural practices that we need to jettison and throw overboard and and cause them to completely disappear in our life so scripture now gets very specific and it talks about uh a Christian's call, and that they are called to a very high standard of living. And it's very basic. If you look in uh, Thessalonians, you find that in this passage of Scripture, that the Bible is uh, teaching us very clearly that we are to be people who are pleasing to God. Now, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 1 and 2, it says, Finally, then... Brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us 
instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by authority of the Lord Jesus. All right, so the basic thing he's saying here is that I'm, I want to teach you how to continue to walk in a manner that is pleasing before God. You're doing it already, but excel in it. Let it overflow in your life. Let it become a part of the habits of your life. And so he goes on to say that. And of course, if you look down at verse number three, this is where I ended last time, but I didn't say much about it, is that it's God's will for our sexual purity. It says in verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. All right, so that's pretty clear in Scripture that we don't have to really wonder what that means. We can see it's very clear, and I think it's meant to be clear, and it's meant to be direct, especially in this area of how sex is to be used in the sphere of being a Christian. Now, I also mentioned last time that what is sexual purity? Well, God's design is that man and, and woman would exercise their sexuality and experience sexual pleasure in only one context. And of course, that is the context of the marriage relationship, that any impurity dishonors our marriage and defiles our marriage bed. It is taking the affection that we vowed to our spouse alone and giving it to another. It's a horrible offense against our spouse, and it would be a, it's a horrible offense against God also. And so I presented last week this definition of sexual purity. To be sexually pure is to receive sexual pleasure and satisfaction only from your spouse, and to give sexual pleasure and satisfaction only to your spouse. Now, I also mentioned that if you are single, this means attaining, in, really attaining entirely, uh, abstaining entirely from sexual pleasure and satisfaction as long as God keeps you single. In the meantime, of course, you are to pursue the greatest kind of pleasure and satisfaction, and that is of knowing God. And that doesn't mean we, we know that we ought to do that right away. That comes with growing and maturity. That the more I mature in Christ, the more I realize that the real pleasure that I get in this world and the real satisfaction that I get in this world can only come from God himself. And that's what he does give his people. He gives them uh, what they really want but it only comes from him. It cannot come from anything else or outside of him. And that's where we try to go. We try to go outside of the Lord instead of finding it in him. And then, of course, the backdrop of that, what is sexual impurity? Well, to be sexually impure is to receive sexual pleasure or satisfaction from any source other than your spouse or to give sexual pleasure or satisfaction to anyone other than your spouse. A question is brought up in Proverbs, and that question is to people who are learning how to be wise. And here's the question to the young man, and that this all also can be presented to the young woman too. And it's the question that says this, why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner or another man's wife or another, uh, for a woman, it would be another man, right? So the context indicates the answer. There is absolutely no reason. That's the answer. You definitely should not do that. So, so here, the goal of a wise person is to live wisely before the eyes of God and before others. Anything 
other than that would be to live foolishly. And if I ask anybody, would you want to be characterized as a fool? Nobody's raising their hand. All right. So in other words, this is going to present to us an understanding from Scripture on what God requires of us. And then Jesus takes it in the New Testament and raises the bar for us where he says this in the New Testament. In Matthew, he says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, when you read something like that, you have to really step back and think of what he is saying here because there is a link in this passage between adultery and lust. Generally, what Scripture says of adultery is also true of lust. So Jesus not only restates the awfulness of adultery and God's command against it, he also added a dimension that some may not have realized was involved in the seventh commandment, sinning in thought, to look and lust. Now, lust is the eye, is to eye something with evil desire. That's what lust is. That is adultery in God's sight, as much as being an awful act is really also that. Adultery is violating the marriage covenant by engaging in sexual behavior mentally. Did you know that one half of all divorces take place because of adultery? Often encouraged by pornography. Years ago, I read a publication on the rebirth of America, and Charles H. Keating, Jr., in a report on pornography to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, reports that recent study by the Michigan State Police using a computer to classify over 35,000 sex crimes in the state alone over a period of 20 years found that 43% were pornography-related. And for sure, we know this, that pornography gives a distorted view of human sexuality and sensuality. It stresses the erotic without so much as giving a hint to where that path will lead. In fact, I was mentioning last time about the child trafficking, which is a very uh, one of the major criminal activities happening under, the second under drug trafficking. And when these people are caught and they are interviewed and interrogated, they the question that is placed before them is, how did you get here? How did you get to child uh, having sex with children? And this is what they said. I started off with pornography, softcore pornography, which led to harder pornography, which led to wanting to live out all what I was seeing, which led to this, which led to that, which led to finally saying the ultimate would be to have someone innocent and young. And that's the goal. And that's a satanic goal. But it's all fueled by, they, every one of them said it's fueled by pornography. So pro- pornography will lead someone where they don't want to go. And it'll keep them longer than they want to stay. And it will make them pay more than they want to pay. So we need to stay away from that kind of stuff. And it's not just men today, it's women too. It's all over the place today. And people will say, well, hey, looking doesn't hurt anybody. Well, that is true to a point. Because there is a very fine line between looking and looking that leads to lusting. And lusting that is 
has evil desire and intent to it, and the Bible has warned right from the beginning that there is a pattern of sin when it comes to looking. That looking will lead to desiring, which will lead to lusting, which will lead to taking what you want. That's the downward spiral. So Jesus is teaching that adultery can be committed in your thoughts because adultery springs from an unclean heart. What is it that really produces defilement? Nothing that comes from outside that makes us unclean. Defilement is moral and spiritual. It always involves the heart. You know, the heart is the center of personality where it's, it, it, it wills and it thinks and it dwells on things. When the contents of the heart spill out, they spill out through words and actions. They are the very things that defile a man. In fact, this is what the Gospel of Mark says in Scripture, and he was saying that which proceeds out of the man that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man and that is the sobering truth in Scripture. Where does all this evil come from? It's right in your heart. It's all there. All of it's there. That's how God sees us. And that's what sin has done when it entered into this world. So what defiles a person is their own thoughts, their own words, their own actions, which are a product of their own heart. So, if we consider that, what is man like? Well, man is really under the knife. He is somebody who, the Bible says, needs a new heart transplant. That's what he needs. So man's greatest need, then, is a new heart. And conversion is, therefore, the work of God in extracting our hard hearts and giving us hearts that are soft to the salvation he has worked for us in Jesus Christ. That's what we all need. So, Because we all have a problem. The problem is sin. And we have all this stuff in our heart. So when we're tempted to do it, then we don't have a hard time really doing all this, uh, these things that the Bible mentions because it's already there in our heart. So Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27 says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put new, a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from you, uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It means a heart that's pliable and moldable, a heart that the Lord can speak to. I will put my spirit within you and cause you and, and move you to follow my decrees and you will be careful to observe or keep my laws or ordinances. That's what the Lord will do with us when we come to Christ. And so we, we ought to run to Christ to be saved. So why do relationships tend to fray and fall apart? Well, Jesus is saying it's because it's, we are what's wrong. It's what comes out from the inside. It's the self-centeredness of the human heart. It, it, it is sin. Uh, it's rebellion against God. In fact, these evils mentioned in the Mark passage of Scripture that come from the heart is what makes us so unclean. And that's what the law does. The law puts is like a mirror. We look into the law and we see ourselves. And what is the what should we see when we look into the law? We see 
not a good person, but a person who's defiled and dirty before God. That's what we see. That's what's supposed to happen. In fact, if we are honest, the way Jesus explained it in Matthew, we are all guilty of that one. We are all guilty of that one. But let me remind you of what the Bible warns us of, and it's this. In James 2, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. So it just takes one sin to bring the whole condemnation upon us. We're born in sin because of Adam's sin, and so we're sinners, And but God's a holy God. His standard is perfection, and there's no one who's perfect. We all fall short of that standard. A little girl once watching sheep grazing on the hillside thought how white they look against the green background. But when it began to snow, she thought the sheep now look dirty against the white snow. It was the same sheep, but with a different background. Now, when we compare ourselves to man's standards or to someone else, we look pretty clean. We may look better than someone else. But when we compare ourselves with the pure, white righteousness of God's standard, that is in the moral law, we can see ourselves in truth, that we are unclean in his sight. We are unholy in his sight. But thank the Lord, the Lord came to die for those who are unholy, right? Ungodly. That's what he came to die for. And Paul admonishes Christians in, in the book of Romans, and he says this to them. He says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to what? In, in regard to its lusts. And he meant lust there with evil desire. In regard to that, that lust is so aggressive that we must fight against it as soldiers of Jesus Christ. To not fight against it is to accept defeat. This battle has cosmic proportions, for it is part of the war against Satan, who is viciously fighting to divert our affections away from our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what he's doing. He's very much involved in the religious world. That's where he plays his game, his chess game. And he's trying to divert your attention off the things that are temporal or eternal onto temporal things. God wants us to focus in on eternal things, right? That's what he wants us to do. So, so what are we do to do with sexual impurity? Well, that's what leads me back to the Thessalonian passage. And so look there with me. Notice in verse number 3 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says there, what are we to do? For this is, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Another word for sanctification is the word holiness, right? So we are to pursue, in other words, a life of holiness, a life of being set apart unto God. So God's will is the thing that God wants. And what God wants is what pleases him. And he's telling us right here what pleases him. This means to please him, we must know and do his will. What is the will of God for the Thessalonians and for us? Well, it's right there. The will of God is, first of all, your sanctification. A life of holiness. So believers come to Christ in all their sin and they receive cleansing by his atoning blood, then every day we become more and more what God would have us to be. That means to be set apart, holy to God, and separated in the consecration of life and conduct, a conduct that pleases God. But there's a second thing that he mentions in verse number 3. And if you notice this, we also, also are to keep free from any form of sexual immorality. And look what it says. This 
uh, that is, he says, and this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What is he saying there? It's God's will for you to abstain. Abstinence is the very strong verb here. It means to avoid, to keep free from something. To abstain from what? Sexual immorality. And of course, the Christian is to have nothing to do with any form of, the Greek word here is pornea. We get the word pornography from, porn, right? That's premarital, extramarital, or unnatural sexual behavior. We're to stay away from all of it. When you see a sign that says danger, high voltage, stay away. The wise thing to do is to obey and make no attempt to defy the warning. Or you may be fried in a second. See, sexual immorality is equal to high voltage. Stay away from that. Stay far away. That's why the Bible says when it comes to this sin, run, flee, get out of there. Don't even let it get a, get a, a little hook in you. Don't let that happen. Because if it gets a hook in you, usually it'll reel you in, and then it will cause the results of that sin to wreak havoc in your life. So this word, sexual immorality, or this word, Greek word pornea, really is an all-inclusive term designating complete abstinence to any form of sexual immorality. This includes abstinence from any real or imagined sexual deviant behavior. For, the human, for, for human beings to attempt to gratify their sexual hunger in any other way than marriage is a deviation from God's plan and God's will. That would include any man-to-woman sexual relationship outside or before marriage, fornication before, adultery after. Any man-to-man or woman-to-woman sexual gratification, such as occurs in homosexuality, even though some today, a lot today, would have us believe that homosexual activity is neither wrong nor immoral, but simply a different lifestyle, God's word declares it is sin. It is a twisted perversion of the normal, the norm created by God, one man and one woman. That's from the beginning. That has not changed in God's program. That has changed in our culture. That has changed in the fabric of the world. But it has not changed in the mind of God from the Old and New Testament. And the church and the people of God need to keep that. It also means that it includes any self-stimulated gratification such as occurs in masturbation. That is impure because it is attempting to have pleasure outside the marriage bond. It is a selfish act than a a loving one. It is gratifying the flesh. It is is a perversion of that which is good and how God intends it to be satisfied only in marriage. So the first thing we Christians are to do is to hold ourselves away from fornication. And then... The next thing we are to do is to know how to do the first thing. And what's that? Look at verse number four of our next uh, passage in there. It would be this. God's provision is our self-control. In verse number four, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. We know how to possess our own vessel in sanctification and in honor. Now, that means there, if we look at verse number four, what are we to know very well? It says that each of us know how. So in other words, the Thessalonians, these Christians, knew how to possess their own vessel. And that word vessel, some have interpreted how to, how to possess your wife. I don't believe that's where it's leading. I believe we're, what it's saying is how to possess your, possess your own body. 
right? You're, you're, the thing that I walk around with, you walk around with, it, this is our vessel, right? We're, we're to possess it, our own vessel, in sanctification, that being set apart to God. And then in honor that we are to learn, to know, to practice the habit of purity. That's what he's been talking about. Your habit of sin becomes your habit of holiness and righteousness. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4, right here, what does possess mean? I believe, again, the emphasis is on getting a handle on learning how to keep your own body under control so you will preserve it for purity right up until the day you get married or to the day that you meet Jesus. Now, why do you restrain yourself and give your members over to the power of the Holy Spirit for living righteously? Righteously? Well, it's for, it's for this reason. Here's the bottom line reason. Because you love the Lord God. And now that you're, if you are a believer, when you are a believer, then you want to please him. He is now my, remember, when we, when we trust in Christ, we're trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He is now my master. He's now, and he is a good master, and so what he says and what he requires of me is always good. And so I want to please him. So there must be, this must be the primary reason we abstain from sexual immorality is that we want to please the Lord. Now, if, if you claim to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then everything changes. Everything changes. Now, why is that? Why does everything change? Because our old lifestyle, our old habitual sinful lifestyle is incompatible with being a Christian. Would you agree with that? It's incompatible with being a Christian. In other words, I'm new now. I have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling me. I have the Word of God. I now uh, have desires I didn't have before. I have desires to really want to honor God. I realize I still sin, and sin still could affect me, but I don't want to sin. I want to do righteousness. And so there's that struggle when you're a Christian. I still have remaining sin in me, but I want to put that sin off. I want to put that sin to death. I want to abide in Christ. And I want to live more and more pleasing him. And so, see, that's the desire we have as Christians. And where does that desire come from? It doesn't come from your willpower. It doesn't come from actually anyone else. It doesn't come from the world. It doesn't come from the enemy, Satan. It doesn't come from your flesh. It has to come from God. That is not a mindset or a desire that we're born with. We are born to be rebels against God. Now the Spirit of God's in us. Now we want to what? Conform to the will of God. We're talking about the will of God in this passage of Scripture. Now, take your Bibles now and turn to the First John. That's in the back of your Bible. First John. And I want you to look at some of these passages of Scripture here because I want to just throw out to you really three areas of incompatibility when someone becomes a Christian. There's more areas, but I just want to give you three this morning, three areas of incompatibility. All right, now I am assuming in saying this that you are a believer, that you come in repentance and faith to believe in Christ. You're not trusting in anything else. You're just trusting in Him, right? And so... If, if that is true of you, then these things will be true of you too. So let's look at them. Here's the first area of incompatibility, and it would be this. It would be, number one, your old, habitual, sinful heart and lifestyle is incompatible with your new connection to Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, look what it says. No one who abides in him, that's in Christ, sins. No one who sins has been, has seen him or knows him. Now, of course, what that is saying here doesn't mean that we become sinless by the way that 
sounds. What it means is that if we abide in him, we do not habitually sin. We don't go on sinning in the same way. We are actually, and if we, if we do, if we don't go, if we do go on sinning the same way, the Bible says there, you haven't seen him, neither do you know him. Now, that, that has to be clear in our minds that, in other words, if somebody is living a continuous, habitual, unrepentant lifestyle, whatever the sin may be, in this case, of course, we're talking about sexual sin, but whatever the sin may be, if you do that and you name the name of Jesus, you're just lying to yourself. Because the Bible says if you live that way, you, don't, you haven't seen him and you don't even know him. So if, if you don't know him, then he doesn't know you. And so, actually, here there may be two groups. Group number one is the one who abides in Christ, has an ongoing relationship with him, and does not continue in willful, habitual sin. Right? They don't want to do that anymore. But group two is someone who does not abide in Christ, even though he or she may say they do abide in Christ. Those in group two are characterized by the practice of sin as the ruling principle of their lives. They have no ongoing relationship to Christ. They have not seen him. They do not know him. They have never gained an intimate acquaintance with Christ evidenced by their habitual sinful lifestyle. And there are many people who profess Christ. I know Jesus. I'm, I'm a Christian, but if you look at their life style, the way they live day by day, you'll find out what, what you're doing over here doesn't line up with what you're saying. So, see, the Bible wants us to know that we're really Christians, that we're really in Christ. So, see, a habitual sinful lifestyle is incompatible with the new connection that you have with Jesus Christ. Secondly, a second thing in 1 John is this. These all are all from 1 John. Because your old habitual sinful lifestyle, uh, heart and lifestyle, is incompatible with the character and nature of Christ. Well, what is that character? Look up in chapter 3, in verse number, chapter 3 and verse number um, 5. It says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him... There is no sin. So what is the nature of Christ? He hasn't sinned, right? This underscores the sinlessness, the, sin, the sinless nature of the Redeemer as righteous and pure. He who opposes sins in the lives of his people is himself without sin. Like it says in Corinthians, he was made, it says, he made him who knew no sin. And then in Hebrews one who has been tempted in all things and yet without sin. And then notice in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 3, it says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So in other words, in that passage of Scripture, who is the one who is righteous? Christ. And who is the one who practices righteousness? The ones who know Christ. All right? They have a habitual pattern of putting off sin, which way they didn't before. So habitual actions are an index of character. Right deeds spring habitually from a character that is righteous. Christ is always our example here that Christians are to act like their Lord Jesus. That means a Christian develops habitual actions of righteousness, giving proof of their regeneration, giving proof that they are born again. If we have Christ's righteousness, we will more and more act like Christ and not like the devil, who was our father before we came to Christ. Right Now, look what it says in verse number 8, because it leads me to the, the third incompatible thing, and it's this. It's in that old 
habitual sinful heart and lifestyle is incompatible with the Christian's new nature. I have a new nature now. What is it? Well, look at verse number 8 of chapter 3 of 1 John. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So, in other words, the Christian is not like he used to be. They, what, what does that mean there? They do not have a habitual pattern of sin anymore in their life. The one who practices sin, the Bible says, is of the devil. If you continue to have that, you, you haven't changed at all. Matter of fact, you haven't changed families. You're still in the old family, and the old family, your father is the devil. So the principle of the divine life is given to the one who is born of God. So therefore, their, their new nature is to practice righteousness, which before I became a Christian, it was not my nature to practice righteousness. It was my nature to practice sin. In contrast, the devil, he that keeps on doing sin, it says here, it is the habit and the character of his nature to sin, and all those who are his children, it's their character and nature to sin also. So when one acts like the devil, he shows that he is not a true child of God. The devil has been sinning, the Bible says, from the beginning of his career. That is his normal life, and those who imitate him are his spiritual children. So when a person thinks and acts like this, they actually misrepresent the character of God and make him out to be what he is not. It communicates that all God has done and planned in the person of Jesus Christ is for nothing, in fact, maybe a big hoax, because a person can profess something and not live it is not in line with what the Bible teaches about real conversion. Now, look at verse number 9 of 1 John, right? Because, again, the Christian is different than they used to be. Look at verse number 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. There it is right there. Why? Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. He cannot do it anymore. Because he is a new birth. He's born into the family of God. He has the spirit of God. So God has given believers new birth. They cannot continue in sin because God's seed abides in that person. The metaphor of God begetting. That the reason why those born of God cannot continually sin is because God's DNA is in them. If I may say it like that. The new birth is affected by God through the Spirit of God. In other words, God's seed, the divine principle of life, of which he had begotten his children, remain in them. God doesn't, people say, well, can, you can lose your salvation. Not when this happens, you can. According to Scripture, when God saves someone and puts his seed in them, who's going to take that away from that person? Nobody can do it. That person can't even do it because they're born again into God's family. So God's offspring are spiritual children born from above that now have a new nature. And because of this, they can only be what their new nature expresses. Therefore, the child of God does not have the habit of sin anymore. If you notice in verse 9, it says he cannot sin. He cannot go on in the old pattern anymore. He cannot go on sinning. That's what it means. It means it is impossible for the Christian to live a habitually sinful life without confession, without uh, conviction, without repentance, without chastisement. In fact, when you're a believer, you're going to be confessing your sin. So what, what do we do when we sin? Well, if we go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, confess your sin, right? 
and he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. And the next verse talks about walking in the light as he's in the light, right? So you keep walking in the light, and as you're walking in the light, what's the light going to do? The light's going to expose all the rest of the sin that's in your life. Remember, God doesn't reveal all our sin at one time. It would be a horror. It would be a horror. It would be such a horror story, you wouldn't be able to take it. Right? You'd probably die on the spot. Right? So he doesn't do that. He, he allows us to see our sinful heart as we sanctified slowly in Christ-likeness. But when we see that, that sin, you know what we do? We run to him. We run to the cross. And we said, Lord, we don't run to a priest. We don't run to a church building. We don't run to any kind of ceremony. We don't run to anything like that. We run to Christ, and we said, Lord, you died for this sin, and I'm confessing it to you. And I want to put it down, and I want to put that sin to death, and I want to follow you. That's the pattern of a believer. In fact, when you confess your sin, you are living righteously. That is a righteous pursuit of God. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. And so when we come to the Lord with that, with our sin, then we what do we what do we receive? We receive forgiveness, we receive cleansing, we receive God's mercy, right? And, and it's really true biblical confession is not just saying, sorry about that. It's saying, I have offended my Lord, and my offense is as serious to me as it is to him. That's what it is. Lord, you hate this thing. You died for this. I don't want it in my life anymore. I want it out of my life. I want to please you in the way I live. See, true confession of sin to God involves the accepting of personal responsibility for that sin. So that personal sin is genuinely recognized and not explained away. It's not rationalized. And it's not presumed upon either. And what I mean by that is when people say, well, I'll send this sin, and I know I can just run to Christ afterwards and ask him to forgive me. No, that's presumption. So now you're sinning two sins and a multitude of other sins. No, a Christian does not presume that God is going to do something when you sin and then you come to him thinking that you can just do that without immunity. It's not going to happen because that's where chastisement comes in. God will punish us because we are his children, and God's not going to let us get away with bad behavior. He's going to punish us, right? That's what he does. So, in other words, what do we, what do, we do? Why do we do that? Well, look up. You're still in 1 John there. Look at, look at verse number 3 of 1 John chapter 3. Why do we do that? It says 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Then everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. So in other words, that's what we do. We come to him, we're liberated from our sin, and we are purified, cleansed, forgiven because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. That is what we are to do. And then let's turn back now uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 6. And uh, I think I may pick up some of the rest next time, but I just want you to look at this passage. In verse number 5, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5, It says, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who what? Who do not know God. So see, you see, uh, the reason why I went to First John and came back from there is because of this, that Christians know God. And they know what God wants of them because of the word of God. And they know, they're learning to know the will of God. So see, in other words, a Christian knows how to control themselves around all other women and men of all ages at all times. That in the context of Thessalonians, the reason 
The reason, the, the reason that we are to keep ourselves pure is not only because we please God, but also because of our marriage partner. And if you're not married yet, for the person that you're going to marry, you're keeping yourself pure for that special relationship you have with the other person. See, cohabitation and all the stuff that's going on today is, the oh, I'll try the person out first, and then if we like each other, maybe we'll stay together. Right? Well, you know what? Most of the time it doesn't work out at all. In fact, they, they destroy the specialness of the consummation and the union of a man and woman when they get to that point where they're married and now they're, they're having sexual relationships in the place that God intended. That's where all the joy comes from. That's where all, all the, the blessings come from, from God because we're doing it in the way he designed it. See, that's the key there. They know God. The people who do not live this, like this way do not know God. They, the people who do now have an intimate relationship with God the Father through the atoning death of Jesus Christ and are presently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So God is working in us purity. And we are working out that purity that God's working in us through our thought life and through our daily relationships and all our other activities. It is God's will that every Christian is to know how to act in the manner of sex so as to be pleasing to God. That's what he says here in this passage, that Christians know. What do they know? What do Christians know? Christians know very well that every type of fornication is contrary to the will of God. Christians know very well that passion alone is an inaccurate and often destructive guide. The whole thing, follow your heart, is a bunch of malarkey. No, you follow the truth. You follow the truth, and as your conscience is being developed and Grown, grown in Christ's likeness by the truth, then you'll be able to listen to the voice of God that's coming through the word of God as you understand the truth of what God's will is. Not listen to your own heart. It'll lead you astray every time. Christians also know very well that, God's, that God instituted marriage for the honorable use of the sexual relationship. We saw that last week. Christians know very well that they are to set themselves apart to please God and live honorably before people in pure relationships with others. In other words, in sanctification and honor. So that is what the Gentiles, the pagans, the unbelievers do not know for certain. They don't know with certainty to do that. Neither do they have deep convictions about how to live their life. Because why is that? Because they don't know God. If you don't know God, if God is not in the reference of your planning and your living, and I mean know God through Jesus Christ, all right, if we don't know God, then we're, where do we get our standards from? We get our standards from the world, Right? We get our standards from our family. We get our standards from ourselves. We get our standards in our own developed philosophy of life. That's where we get our standards from. And those standards will reflect whether we know God or don't know God. And I'm talking about not the standards, just the outward behavior, but inward thought. What's going on in your mind, in your heart. God knows all those things. So see, they don't know God, so they run wild in all manner of sexual excess, following the cues of the world, their own sinful passions, and satanic temptation. I think I'm going to leave it right there. I'm not done. I'm not done because the next part of the passage of Scripture is going to uh, bolster up everything that I said already. So you have to be here next week for that. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you this morning. Lord, in these difficult passages of Scripture that really lay, come hard on our heart, come directly to us, I pray, Lord, that you would allow us as your children, with your spirit indwelling us, with the word of God guiding us, that your will would be done in this area in our life. And I pray, Lord, that young people who are just hearing maybe these things for the first time, or maybe they know them, but they're not putting them into practice, and they say they know Christ, I pray today, Lord, would be a day that they make all those things right with you. If they don't know you, they come to believe in you as their Lord and Savior. If they do, that they would be living in a manner that pleases you because you see all. You are the avenger of those who do wrong. And I pray, Lord, that these truths would be able to also give us guidance on teaching others, parents teaching their children. Even, Lord, ourselves, it would keep us walking on the straight and narrow in a way where we know that we are walking in a manner that's pleasing to you or we know when we're walking in a manner that's not pleasing to you. Lord, those things become clear to your children. And I just pray, Lord, let us yield ourselves to the Spirit of God so he would give us the strength and ability to be able to walk in a manner that honors you and that our relationships with others of the opposite sex would be honorable and it would be one that pleases you also. Lord, keep us pure. Keep young people pure until they get married. And Lord, keep marriages pure. Keep all kinds of outside influences, Lord, outside of the realm of our marriage. So our thoughts would be that thoughts that are pleasing to you and are honoring within the marriage sphere. And so, Lord, take all these things, work them together for the good, the glory of your name, the honor of Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.